Okay, hi everyone. Um, I guess I will um, I will start as as uh, more people um, join join the webinar. Um, so I'll just uh, first I'll introduce myself, then go over the uh, procedures of the uh, of the webinar and introduce the speakers. Um, I, I am uh, Omar Al Ghazi. I am uh, an assistant professor in the uh, media and communication department um, at the London School of Economics. Um, and um, this is the Navigating Collapse, Where Next for Lebanon um, webinar, which is uh, hosted by the Middle East Center at, um, at LSE. Um, so we will, we have, um, three speakers um, today, um, and each of our speakers will have about um, 10 minutes to, um, to present, and then we will open um, the webinar for the Q&A and for discussion. Uh, please, if you have any questions at any point, um, type them in the Q&A box um, that you see at the, at the bottom of, uh, of the screen. And I will I will make sure to uh, to read it um, to our um, speakers. Please note that the uh, event is being uh, recorded and um, it is live streamed on Facebook. I'm not sure if Facebook is, is functioning. It might still be down, but anyway, it will be recorded and, and later on um, uploaded. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Middle East. Um, so let me now introduce um, our speakers, and then um, and then maybe I'll I'll just give um, a bit of background on the situation um, in in Lebanon just to set the tone um, of the of the event. Um, our first um, speaker will be uh, Dr. Ibrahim Halawi, who is a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway University of London. His research interests focus on theories and histories of counter-revolution and revolution with an emphasis um, on, um, on Lebanon. He has published in peer-reviewed journals and established outlets in Lebanon, um, as, well, as well as on revolution and sectarianism more broadly. Brahim is also the Secretary of Foreign Relations in a new progressive secular Lebanese party called um, Citizens in a State. Um, this second speaker, by, by order of speaking, that is, is Rida Frangie, who is a lawyer and researcher based in Beirut. She has been a member of the legal agenda since 2011 and is currently the head of its strategic litigation unit. Um, the legal agenda is a law and society research and advocacy organizations with offices in Beirut and Tunis. Um, Rida recently worked on producing a legal guide for the victims of the Beirut blast of 4 August um, 2020 to support their path um, to justice. She holds a master's degree in applied human rights from France and has produced various publications related to social justice and human rights issues. Um, and finally, Abir, last but not least, Abir Sassou, um, our third speaker, graduated as an architect in 2000 five um, and later did her master's in urban development and planning. Um, her uh, BA was at AUB and her uh, master's was from uh, UCL. She is co-founder and co-director of Public Works Studio, a research-based organization that addresses spatial inequality in Lebanon. Her primary focus includes urbanism and law, um, property and shared space and right to the city of marginalized um, communities. She is also a member of the Legal Agenda and co-founder of Dictaphone Group. So just to um, first welcome to our um, speakers and thank you very much for, um, for speaking um, to us and, and telling us about the situation um, in Lebanon. And to set the tone of, of the discussion, um, I, I perhaps would start with the idea of navigating collapse, which is in the, in the title of the, of the webinar. And I think I think um, the idea of collapse has been um, a, a, a very experienced backdrop to life um, in Lebanon. So it is not a hyperbolic uh, kind of uh, word to say because everyday life in Lebanon has become um, really difficult with this really steep decline in, in quality of life and this infrastructural uh, 
meltdown that is um, experienced in terms of, of lack of fuel, lack of electricity, lack of water, of medicines. Um, so every, everyday life has really become um, a challenge in Lebanon, particularly for its marginalized, uh, marginalized com communities. And, and the backdrop of this, um, like everything else, there are long-term um, reasons, which, which in Lebanon are, is what can be best perhaps this, described as the mafia regime that is, that is in power and that has been in power um, since uh, uh, post-civil war um, after the, the, the Taif agreement that, that ended the um, civil war in Lebanon in 19, uh, 1990. And basically the, the warlords um, became the, the, main, the main politicians um, in Lebanon. And this, this uh, backdrop culminated in, um, in what the Lebanese call um, the revolution of October 2019, where the, there was this unprecedented mass um, protest and rejection of the, of, the political, of the political class. And of course, there are new, uh, manif new manifestations of, of these political problems, including COVID-19 uh, more, more recently and kind of the economic challenges that that posed, but also, as we, we know, the horrific explosion that happened on, on 4 August 2020, uh, which was the biggest uh, non-nuclear explosion that the world has seen in, in, uh, in the century. Um, and, and that we are still um, living under the repercussions of, of that um, horrific explosion that, that killed more than 200 people in, um, in, in Lebanon a year ago. And Rida will mostly be um, referring to the aftermath of the, of the explosion. And more recent developments um, have to do with um, the formation of a new government in, in Lebanon, but that is widely seen as a continuation of the, of the regime rather, rather than anything that, that has shifted away from. So this is kind of a brief background to where things are. And we will start um, now with, uh, with Brahim, who will be talking to us about the, um, uh, this political uh, situation in Lebanon, not only in the past, but with an eye um, to the future and what is um, upcoming um, over the next uh, years. So Brahim, um, over to you. Thank you, Omar, and thanks to the Middle East Center for the invitation. Um, I really appreciate that for once we have a event on Lebanon that is not pretending that nothing abnormal is happening. I really appreciate the title, the way in which we're framing this conversation. Um, because to start, um, what we're seeing now in Lebanon is the largest disappearance of wealth per capita in modern history. So the overlap of incredible crises be it fiscal, economic, health, of course, related to the, uh, to the pandemic, but also related to the fact that half of the medical staff have already left the country, they've migrated. So the, the overlap of crises are unprecedented. So despite the fact that Lebanon is kind of uh, notorious for its cycles of crises, but this is really a substantial moment. So what I will be doing in my 10 minutes is I will first um, go over the, the way in which, very briefly, the way in which the political system um, reacted, or is still, because we are still in the midst of this crisis, is reacting to this crisis. And then from there, um, I will move into the new government precisely how it will likely behave in the next year. And then think about the prospects of um, political change, or basically the possibilities and the prospects of uh, the political opposition that, as you mentioned, Omar, kind of mostly emerged partially from that moment in, in the uprising, but also from uh, at least a decade of the culmination of challenging the, the political system and see where it heads, specifically in the context of the elections that is provisionally due next year. So yeah, firstly, with, with this kind of economic crisis, when, when you have the largest disappearance of wealth per capita in modern history, this from a historical perspective, this means that we are in a de facto transitional phase. So this is a society that suddenly woke up with half the GDP. Uh, and in that sense, the formal GDP, of course, there's a lot of informal things happening. But in that sense, 
naturally the, the, the political system, social relations has to change in response to this massive transformation. Um, and, and usually what happens when something like this happens is the government steps in and immediately it starts doing things like renegotiating the debt, the debt of the, the government debt, um, trying to put a plan um, that protects a safety net, that protects the most vulnerable classes of society from the aftermath of the economic collapse. Um, you would imagine things like preparing a proposal um, for the people to vote on or referendum, some kind of a project that decides how the state will look like after containing this crisis, because this is a very transformational moment. However, uh, what we actually saw in Lebanon ex is exactly the opposite. There was, and this is not something I'm saying from the perspective of the position, this is kind of a, even from a technocratic perspective, there was a deliberate depression um, in Lebanon that was systemically orchestrated by um, um, an alliance of very crooked banking elite, financial uh, and banks uh, in Lebanon with the political elite. So basically what they did is they intentionally destroyed the currency. Of course, the currency naturally as part of the crisis, it loses value, but they deliberately produced at least three currency exchange rates depending on what exactly the transaction is and where it's happening, which by virtue of having three or four currency exchange rates mean that the economic activity in the country is compromised um, at the, um, in favor of the black market, which in turn empowered monopolies and cartels to hoard a lot of the strategic resources in the country and exploit very vulnerable um, individuals in society and society at large. They also, as part of this project of how they dealt with the crisis, they contributed, if not intentionally, then unintentionally, but mostly intentionally, to the mass, another wave of mass migration of the young middle class in Lebanon, which, as you pointed out, Omar, had a moment of awakening in uh, October 2019 through the uprising, and they were meant to become the, the, the most dangerous um, challenger to the political system. So another wave of mass migration is following the crisis. As I mentioned at the beginning, half of the medical staff have already left the country. Uh, a huge portion of the educational sector staff have left the country. Um, what this means, as I said, is the complete transformation of society as we know it. Um, so they, they kind of deliberately contributed to, to this manifestation of the crisis. Now you'd ask, why would they do that, right? Why on earth, even if they are crooked or mafia, as you call them, why would they intentionally do such level of destruction? Because they had two choices. They either concede to a significant portion of the losses as financial elite in order for the society to be able to come out of this crisis, or they really pass the bucket and force society uh, to incur the largest share of the losses that uh, come with such an economic crisis. And typically they chose the latter and therefore society today is completely transforming so that this uh, coalition of financial and political elite, first of all, protect their own private wealth, which for a large part has been uh, taken out of the country because again, not a usual case, but in the reaction to such a crisis, the government would put some kind of capital restrictions on to, to, to make sure that there wouldn't be a capital flight. But this exactly wasn't the case in Lebanon. If anything, the central bank and the crook bankers, they contributed by phoning their entourage to ship a lot of the what is left of cash in the country out of the country into private accounts. So in other words, they chose to destroy society in order to stay in power and protect their private wealth. Now this takes us to the new government. Um, after a year of bickering, which is typical in Lebanon, but in the context of such a crisis, you'd think they'd act differently. Uh, Hariri wasn't able to form a government. It doesn't really matter. It was mostly buying time and selling people the illusion of the possibility of containing the crisis. Now we actually have a new government led by one of the billionaires in the country who is notorious for making a lot of money out of monopolies. So this guy really actually sort of enjoys um, the, the, the economic crisis which breeds monopolies across the world 
specifically in the global south. And therefore now he's leading this government, which if you look at the names, uh, anyone who's following would know that it is basically the financial elite officially taking the front row, the front seats. If anything, now they are driving the wheels. Um, so they were always in the background, as I mentioned, the way in which losses have been distributed in this transitional phase, the way in which the currency has been dealt with, the way in which capital was allowed to fl fly out of the country, the way in which monopolies were um, empowered. All of this was really a coordination between banks and the political elite. Now they take the front seat because they think that it is the right time now that everything is ready to renegotiate re with the IMF. And of course, given their position and their interests, what we expect is to fortify uh, a specific agenda, uh, which would really continues in destroying what is left of the Lebanese middle class um, and basically pacifying what is left of the youth in order for them to stay in power. Now, this takes us into the question of the elections. The elections now, we were worried that it won't happen, we still are, um, but suddenly this new uh, prime minister, Najib Mekati, he decides that the elections will take place even earlier. So they brought it earlier into March. And many people thought this is a great thing, right? It's gonna happen. But if you put it in perspective, the second thing he said after that is that the austerity program, basically the way in which they will um, deal with the IMF, the reforms that they will uh, implement provisionally uh, will not take place before the elections. They will be decided before the elections, but the real stuff, like the, the stuff that will actually squeeze society even further will happen after the elections. So they brought the election earlier so that this has, doesn't have to wait for long. Um, and if they end up doing the elections, it means that they've already agreed with the IMF and international creditors on a way forward which would then decide um, uh, the, the outcome of society. And the elections would simply be an event in which they reproduce the legitimacy and therefore it, this would allow them to implement the program. This is very dangerous because it is dividing um, the opposition. So this now takes me into the last bit of my, um, of my contribution. The political opposition, I think, if I am to be uh, blunt about what's going on, there are three versions or approaches to the opposition that we see today. The first one is basically an opposition that is not politically mature and therefore it's presenting itself. These are mostly individuals or small groups as nicer people, right? So we are nicer, we're more, we're more uh, progressive, we're more uh, moral than the sectarian corrupt, corrupt elite. So these people have not yet developed a program, but they are selling themselves as nicer people. This is obviously in the context of politics, even in the context of elections, it does not sell and cannot stand the test of uh, political uh, struggle for power. The second kind of opposition is the opposition um, for the sake of opposition. So this is regardless how they kind of sell themselves, they have yet to come up with an idea of how they want to distribute these losses if they were in power, right? So what kind of program, policy program would they offer to the society to contain the crisis? So tomorrow if they come to power, what would they do? And secondly, what kind of state they promise the society after we come out of this crisis. So we don't see that there's an obsession with opposing. So it's a negative narrative rather than sort of a constructive narrative. And the third kind of opposition is what is a political opposition. It's the alternative that is presenting a policy program and an alternative form of organizing society as part of this transitional moment. But all of these oppositions, they won't, um, those who are betting on elections will be disappointed because they will realize that election is simply part of this uh, procedure of reproducing legitimacy and heralding with a new way of distributing resources. They will realize that elections is a detail in the way in which this country is governed and the more important political battles are taking place on the policies that would decide how losses will allocated, what is left of society basically. And those who are not betting on elections have very little margin of maneuver as well because it's a little too late. And clearly the, the sectarian elite in coordination with the banks have made the choice of moving forward. And the IMF and the international uh, powers seem to be ready to sort of engage with this alternative program. So it's a, it's a rather bleak uh, story, um, but 
what I want to say at the end, just to conclude this, is that when I study revolutions, that's the thing I realized. Most of the time, any positive or potential promising outcome is not something that we can predict. It is really the product of the action of people that are on the margin of politics. And until then, this is really the sensible, cynical observation. Thank you, Omar. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Ibrahim, um, for giving us this uh, kind of comprehensive look at, at the politics uh, from the past and, and moving to the future. I'm, I'm sure people already have uh, a lot of questions to ask. But now let's move to, uh, to Rida, who will uh, be addressing uh, specifically the, uh, the 4 August blast and kind of the, the legal um, aftermath in terms of the investigation or the lack thereof. Over to you, Rida. Thank you, uh, Omar. And thanks a lot for Ibrahim also for, uh, his, uh, for all his remarks. And in the midst of all the picture um, that Ibrahim was, uh, has just painted and all the transformations uh, that we're witnessing, um, and specifically with all the challenges that the idea of political accountability is now facing. And, and by that, I mean by holding um, what you, Omar, called mafia. And I, I really agree with that, uh, with using that term to um, describe the, the ruling elite currently. Um, the, 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 the question of judicial accountability has really become central in, in this fight against the mafia and against the ruling elite that is really trying to hold on to its power. Um, and, and the blast investigation specifically has become the symbol, if you want, of that fight. Um, 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 the, the, the investigation is facing a lot of obstacles, has faced a lot of obstacles throughout these 14 months, if you want, but it has become also um, a symbol of, um, of, of breaking with um, what we call the regime of legal impunity, which you explained a little bit, which is the post-war regime, the regime that was established right after 1990, when we came out of the war with an amnesty law, where all our leaders were amnestied for their war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, now the situation has um, has changed, at least in the in the social understanding of it. Um, meaning, and this is a slogan that the, the victims of the blast have raised themselves. Meaning that this time um, um, it will be different. That this the four August crime, in its extent, in its uh, uh, enormous uh, damage that it caused, where everyone was affected, was not a crime that we as a society are willing to. Um, um, to let go without any accountability. Um, and it's become a symbol specifically because um, 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 it's not just the 4 August crime that the, the, the society today, or at least the opposition social movements, uh, want to see accountability around, but also all the, the, the financial and economic crimes that caused the collapse, uh, uh, the embezzlement of public funds, the, the corruption, um, and, um, and very most recently, the monopoly around basic necessity, which has made uh, everyday life even more difficult to be able to access medicine, to be able to access fuel and all these things. Um, and so basically the judiciary is now today at the center of this fight with the ruling mafia uh, uh, refusing to be held accountable, refusing to submit to the judiciary and specifically in the blast investigation. We have senior officials who, uh, 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 refuse to submit, refuse to appear before the judge when they are summoned and claiming that they have some form uh, of immunity. And um, it's, it's important to understand that the post-war regime has, um, you described how the warlord had become, uh, had taken over both parliament and government, uh, but it had also specifically um, 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 very much tried to weaken the judiciary so that it could uh, sabotage any type of judicial accountability. Um, we can see that by uh, the fact that the justice sector is extremely uh, underfunded, barely 0.3% of our national budget. Even all the international aid that came to Lebanon um, after the influx of refugees from Syria, none of that aid was actually channeled to the justice system. It was channeled to other uh, um, um, uh, agencies, such as the Ministry of Social Affairs and others who are known to be clientelist-based. Um, the, in the middle of the collapse, the judges, the clerks, they've lost uh, the, their salaries and their wages have lost um, um, their value. Um, um, and, and they can't find fuel to reach the courthouse. They, they, even if they do, there's no electricity. But the most important thing that the mafia did was to create a legal framework where judges 
were not independent and judicial bodies did not have sufficient independence to be able to hold anyone in power um, accountable. And that led for three decades of no accountability whatsoever for all those in power with all the crimes that they have committed. That led to a serious crisis of trust, if you want, between us as a society and our judiciary. And that's exactly why um, both accountability and ju judicial independence had become central to all the social mobilization that happened, be it from 2011 up until um, uh, 2019 with the uprising, but also after uh, the 4 August um, explosion. Um, so, so currently, just to explain a bit about the BLAST investigation, the, it, it has around 50 defendants, including 17 detainees, but all those who are detained are low to mid-level um, um, civil servants, if you want. So none of the senior officials, be, uh, whether they are ministers, former ministers, or uh, head of security agencies, have appeared before the judge and have been uh, have accepted to even be uh, uh, questioned. Um, and all the mafia has allied themselves um, to uh, protect members of the mafia. If, you, if I want to simplify a little bit the, the picture, the mafia has really gathered together to, 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 to shield um, um, its members and its senior uh, members from any form of accountability into the blast. But I'd like to say that we have, we have a bit of, I'd like to be a little bit optimistic, just to send a bit of an optimistic message, which is that I see that there are several factors which are encouraging, um, um, in, at least in the, in the long and difficult road of, of holding um, um, that mafia to, uh, holding that mafia accountable. First being the, the mobilization of the victims of 4 August. They've been working throughout this year, this 14 months, they've, they've organized, they've prepared themselves. Every fourth of the month, they have um, regular protests, they've argued, they've demanded that immunities are lifted. They are really fighting the fight um, and they're not alone. And that's probably a second factor, which is the social mobilization around um, uh, 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 the idea of holding people, of holding those responsible accountable um, and, um, and, and these are movements that came out of all the social uh, mobilization that happened in 2019 and afterwards. They're supporting the victims and they see that the blast investigation is going to open the door to hold that mafia accountable for uh, many of its other crimes, as I was mentioning um, earlier. But in addition to that, we're seeing also some form of judicial mobilization, um, a judicial mobilization to actually hold these people accountable. Um, Today, that judicial mobilization is, if you want, um, it's, it's symbolized or it's led by the judge who's leading the investigation into the blast, uh, Judge Tariq Bitar. Um, he has so far insisted on um, challenging the immunity of senior officials. Uh, he's insisted that he has the right to actually investigate ministers and former ministers, which the mafia uh, currently uh, rejects in their legal, legal narrative. He's, um, he's, he's been leading the investigation with um, a, a, a legal methodology that uh, follows, if you want, the law to the letter and ensuring that he is uh, uh, um, uh, respecting all the procedural guarantees that uh, the defendant could have. Um, and he is facing, he's, I mean, the, the establishment is really fighting back and is fighting him personally because they see that this is going to open the door um, uh, to them being uh, probably uh, behind bars, which we are all uh, dreaming of. Uh, they've been, uh, they've violated the constitution, they've distorted the constitution, distorted the law. Um, they have attacked him personally, they've vilified him, accusing him of political bias, accusing him most recently of being um, um, aligned with US interests. They've threatened him, they've intimidated him, um, and they keep on submitting petitions uh, for his removal. Uh, yet uh, he's continuing. Their most recent attempt uh, was actually uh, blocked um, by uh, the court. So the former uh, senior officials have submitted petitions to remove that judge because they are afraid of him. And just uh, the, the investigation was suspended last week. And just this morning, um, the court ruled that the investigation could, uh, could resume by refusing that petition. So this is what I mean by that judicial mobilization, by that justice system starting to awaken, uh, or at least some of the judges amidst all the collapse that we are facing, starting to, um, and which I think is quite important, redefine the nature of our political regime, um, um, a regime that is based on accountability, on separation of power, but it's also redefining the relationship between 
our politicians and our justice system, um, which I think is necessary if we want to have any hope in the in this new regime that we're hoping um, uh, to build. Um, so this is just to give a few positive notes, if you want, in the midst of all this collapse, really to so that our listeners can understand that this blast investigation is is about justice for for August, but it's also about justice for um, um, most of our society, for people who were the victims of the collapse, who've lost their jobs, for children who are now out of school, people who are unable to find medication, unable to uh, access decent uh, healthcare, and it's fundamentally saying that. Um, uh, we need rulers that put our right to life, that put our dignity and the public interest uh, as a priority rather than their own private interest trying to protect their own wealth and trying to protect their own um, uh, power. Um, so this is just to say that we're fighting back. Um, how this fits into the whole transformation that Lebanon is going to, 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 to witness remains to be seen, but there are people fighting back. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frida. And for ending on, on, on that note, and uh, not to kind of forget about the people fighting back. So thank you. Um, now, um, last but not least, we, we go to um, Abir Sarsou, who will, um, who will be ad addressing the um, reconstruction aspect and the urban politics aspect of the aftermath of the um, 4 August blast. Uh, Abir, over to you. Okay, if I, if I face any connection problems, please let me know. I'll, uh, so um, I'm going to, of course, what I'm going to talk about is really a continuation of uh, what Rida started uh, and uh, reflecting on the whole notion on ju of justice after the blast and the opportunity uh, we have today uh, to actually fight back. So more than one year after the the explosion really uh, ripped through Beirut. Uh, large parts of the capital, uh, of the capital's neighborhoods have been completely carved out on multiple levels, whether physically or socially or economically uh, or from a rights perspective. This is all um, in, in the middle of absolute silence from state institutions and from the media, as if the repercussions of the blast are over. Um, City life has completely picked up its slow pace and most of us resumed our daily activities following familiar, familiar, familiar routines and our regular unhealthy coping mechanisms that we've inherited from past crises uh, or from uh, the wars we've previously endured. But it's not the case for the residents of the neighborhoods that were devastated by the blast who have uh, been unable to return to any sense of normal, normalcy since then. In, the, in this presentation, I will pre briefly, briefly describe the state's response to the blast. And in the context of the ongoing destruction of the city's social fab fabric, I will also argue that full justice for the victims and for society as a whole cannot be really achieved without securing spatial justice for the devastated neighborhoods. And spatial justice is not an unfamiliar concept in Lebanon and to most cities that are, have suffered from uh, neoliberal policies for urbanization. In fact, its absence is something we know very well in Lebanon and we experience it intimately, which is precisely why we must center this form of justice in the rehabilitation of the neighborhoods. And this also comes in the context that we've really seen before, uh, the aftermath of, of uh, reconstruction projects that ended up creating more destruction and what the absence of justice uh, uh, in, in, in urban recovery means. To just give a slight example, almost 14 years ago, the, uh, the Palestinian camp of Nahr al-Barid in North Lebanon was completely destroyed by the Lebanese army. Today, even after uh, launching this glorious reconstruction project that's funded from uh, multiple uh, international uh, organizations and states. Today, after 14 years, 33% of the residents have still uh, not returned to their homes. This number uh, 
really says uh, a lot and it, and it really echoes on the threats that we might have today uh, for the neighborhoods uh, affected by the port explosion. Um, so one year later, what more than one year later, what has happened? According to a recent study, uh, we hear that only 30% of the residents of the most affected neighborhoods have actually returned uh, to their homes, which means that there is a, a huge majority that has not returned, either because uh, of their, their homes have not been repaired or because the neighborhood has been unsafe or because they have been too traumatized to return. Also, a recent survey that we did in Public Works with uh, a survey uh, with a random uh, sample of 146 households, we also see that almost 50% of these households, their answers have been that they haven't finished renovating their homes. Um, in the middle of this, what, what was the state's response? Uh, the only official response by the state was in October 2020, when the state called uh, the law for the protection of damaged and affected neighborhoods and their reconstruction. Uh, the law was redrafted with, without any attempt uh, to draw on lessons of the past. It's devoid of the necessary economic and social components, and it really reduces the urban uh, fabric into buildings and real estate, all in clear disregard to the concept of spatial justice. The law also deprived residents from the agency and the, for them to be able to restore their homes and to renovate uh, the damages. It failed to clarify uh, the compensation process. Uh, until today, residents haven't seen any real fair uh, distribution of compensation uh, uh, as per the law. And of course, the law uh, didn't prioritize housing protection. Um, and I will explain in a bit the repercussion, like what was the result of that. Um, also, the residents have been completely uh, excluded from all discussions around reconstruction and recovery. They have also been treated on an individual rather than collective basis. Many residents have expressed that they feel they've been rendered into uh, recipients of aid rather than people who have rights after the blast. Uh, because also amid the complete, uh, the absolute absence of the state from the crime scene, um, various local uh, NGOs and international organizations uh, took it upon themselves in the first weeks of uh, after the blast uh, to take care of uh, the damages. But this also with time uh, proved the inability to actually cover all damages and was also intertwined with um, the role that sectarian political parties and religious institutions play, played in that. So based on a, on a wide network of sectarian clientelistic networks, the work of, of NGOs uh, ended up um, um, giving some residents and not others based on either political affiliation or religious affiliation and sectarian affiliation. And as a result, families that are, are not affiliated or have any connections to organizations found themselves completely forced uh, to live with the damage. And of course, the most vulnerable remained the non-Lebanese residents who uh, whose, whose homes uh, remained the ones most uh, mostly kept uh, unrenovated. Um, and this, of course, was all within a bigger framework of a lack of housing protections and also a bigger framework in Lebanon, where, as I said, uh, urban policies have always been uh, to serve uh, neoliberal uh, uh, policies and uh, uh, an economy that looked at land uh, and housing as a commodity. And so as a result, the areas destroyed by the port explosion are also areas that had been subjected to uh, fierce waves, of real estate speculation and neoliberal urbanization for the past 20 years. The neighborhoods are really uh, composed of old uh, historical buildings with a large uh, percentage of uh, so in Beirut in general, rent is a primary means of accessing housing. So more, uh, almost 50% of Beirut's residents uh, are tenants. And more specifically, the neighborhoods affected by the blast uh, are also composed, 75% uh, of the residents are tenants and uh, low-income uh, uh, residents. So 
the explosion really threatens this type of residents with permanent displacement uh, amid an insecure housing situation, uh, and also with the complete absence of state accountability, uh, uh, evictions became uh, on the rise. This this um, map shows um, the the transfer of property in the neighborhoods affected by the blast during the past 10 years. So th this survey was done only in two clusters in the neighborhoods. And you see in, in yellow all the property transfer from old landlords to real estate companies. Um, over the past 10 years, this, prop, this property transfer also meant uh, a rise in, uh, in real estate, uh, in real estate uh, value and consequently a rise in uh, rent value and uh, increasing evictions. And of course, the, the, the law that was issued in October, almost a year ago, uh, instead of uh, providing uh, housing protection and uh, protecting the right to housing, the law really stressed on the sanctity of individual property rights. Um, and the law also didn't really provide any alternative housing. It didn't really provide any real housing protection. It only prolongated rent contracts for a year after the law was issued. But this is definitely uh, not, a, uh, not enough given the economic, financial, and social crises uh, we're living through. And, uh, uh, and so as a result, and if you see this mapping that uh, is done by Public Works Housing Monitor, Evictions in the areas uh, affected by the blast uh, increased uh, drastically. This periodic report that shows the um, uh, it maps all all the reports that came to the monitors hotline between 3 September 2020 and 31 April 2021. So we tracked 275 eviction threats affecting 939 people uh, living in Beirut and. 40% of these threats were from the neighborhoods affected by the blast. And a large majority of the residents that were that reported threats of eviction were uh, Syrian refugees and foreign migrant workers uh, who were more vulnerable to eviction, uh, to eviction pressures due to their fragile uh, legal situation. Um, the, threat of, the threats of eviction were, were also really related to uh, uh, sometimes an NGO coming in the house and raising the value of the property and uh, everything that comes consequently after that. Um, so many tenants were actually evicted or permanently relocated. Um, and some were not only evicted uh, uh, due to a threat. Uh, this survey we did, it shows that 42% uh, of vacant units in the area are people who decide to permanently leave after the explosion. This is related really to, uh, to a lack of trust that actually there's a ho their homes are going to be uh, renovated and due to a general neglect of the neighborhood uh, as a whole. This really echoes a, a, a very large threat to the viability of return and return being a major arc uh, and understanding justice after the blast. Because after all, cities are made up of neighborhoods, of residents, of people who live together, uh, uh, who collectively uh, uh, share amenities in the neighborhoods. And so spatial, this, the very concept of spatial justice reflects the needs of residents and it serves as unifying platforms, platform for neighborhoods concerns, demands, hopes, and aspirations. And today, today after the explosion, it's very, because every time after a crisis, uh, uh, the hegemonizing power make use of the crisis to impose a different reality. We've seen this in previous reconstruction projects after uh, 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 several wars. Today, there's really a chance uh, to organize around residents, around victims, to really claim what it means to have a people-centered recovery and how this would mean for us as a city and as a country. Uh, because one of the main pillars of the regime has been its ability uh, 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 to hegemonize over our imagination its ability to actually not allow us to imagine a different reality in the future. 
Um, so part of imagining uh, um, a just recovery for the neighborhoods is an essential component of the larger justice after the explosion. Uh, and definitely it would, it would allow us to imagine uh, what social justice, what spatial justice, uh, uh, and what the right to the city mean after the fall of the regime. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Abir, um, for all of this um, information and also for your um, general framing uh, and emphasis on, uh, on spatial um, justice. Um, so we have time for, uh, for questions. So please, um, for the audience, if you um, have any question to any or all of our speakers, uh, please do write that down in the Q&A in the Q&A box. Um, we already um, have a couple of questions. Um, so Carol um, Abdelkhale is asking about um, the upcoming elections and whether um, there is a chance for a new grassroots initiative to, to secure um, seats. Perhaps to, to expand on, on that um, question or, or reframe it, I think, um, a lot of the time, uh, elections are are framed as kind of like the the hope for change, um, and you know, exclusively perhaps as the way to change things. So I open it up for the three of you. What are your expectations of the upcoming elections, and even elections as that framework in a country like uh, Lebanon? So um, whoever wants to start. Ibrahim, do you want to? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the cynical part, and then Rida does the positive bit. So I'll start with the cynical part. Um, so, so what I said is this is a crashing plane, um, and now the the pilot is the financial elite, uh, who will try to get a compromise with international creditors that would produce very minimal reform and at the same time continue largely with this process of uh, passing the bucket onto society. In this context, any serious political position would not be seeking opportunities to have a seat in a crashing plane. Uh, I, for one, I don't want a seat on a crashing plane led by the financial elite, uh, nor will I trick or mislead my society into believing that giving me a seat in this crashing plane will increase the likelihood of containing the crisis it won't the likelihood of the system enjoying a token opposition and a parliament that they have produced um, is much riskier than uh, us having some a few representatives in a parliament that is doing theatrical job um, in the system so having said that yes there are possibilities for the new political position to win seats in the upcoming elections, but the elections will be run based on a law, run through an institution, which is the Interior Ministry, um, um, in a way that would ensure that what it does is it reproduces the legitimacy of sectarian parties. And at the same time, it would give few seats to the opposition so that we have some kind of a token opposition within the parliament that reproduces its legitimacy. Um, so, as I said, um, it's not where you should look for change. I think the, the key to political change now in Lebanon is a fight over the transitional period itself. Uh, it's trying to do what Rida and others are doing from the legal side, uh, what we uh, in the political opposition are doing on the political side, which is trying to make it harder on the political and financial elite to get on with their plan to destroy society. And the elections will be just the cherry on top for them. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rida, did you? Yeah. Unfortunately, I do share uh, Brahim's skepticism and I'm not very, um, I do, we do have a lot of concerns related to the elections, a lot of what Brahim said, uh, but also um, the question is, can you actually do fair, um, fair elections in the midst of a socioeconomic collapse such as the one we're, we're dealing with? Um, uh, you, I mean, the whole clientelist system of Lebanon is based exactly on the idea of um, 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 exploiting our needs. 
Um, and we are very concerned about how this is going to unfold around the elections. Um, so this is really something to keep in mind. And from the legal point of view, I do agree that the, the electoral law that under which the elections will be organized, if it remains the same, is, 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 very, is a very concerning one. We've experienced it in 2018. We do not have an independent authority that can actually oversee the elections, um, its, um, its organization, its funding, which is a big issue. Um, there's also an issue of gerrymandering. They've divided the, the, um, the districts in a way that suits them as it suited them according to their coalitions back in 2018. Um, uh, there's also the question of the vote of the diaspora. And I, I don't know if you want me to uh, start on the other question that said regarding how people from abroad can help. I can leave that to later. Um, but all these concerns um, make us very uh, skeptical about the possibility of the elections uh, really offering a real change, meaning that we will not be able to win the whole of parliament. However, I think um, um, having an opposition uh, block inside parliament in a transition period to be determined would not would be a, a, a first start, but that is assuming that the regime change is going to happen very slowly um, through from inside the system. So uh, uh, that is, so yeah. So all these questions remain to be seen, but I am skeptical about the elections. Hey, thank you, Rida. Um, Abir, um, and also there, there is a question um, about the syndicate election. So maybe, Abir, in your answer to this, you can also address if syndicate on the syndicate level it's different. And the question is by Hadi McCarran, I think. Yeah, I was going to, I was, <laughs> I won't add to, <laughs> to the cynicism around parliamentary elections, but uh, I do believe that elections in general are a chance or uh, if you may call it a, a train stop towards being organized and, and being active on the ground by helping develop new structures. Uh, and we've seen this in, uh, in the experience of Nakhabatantafid where uh, for, for me personally, having been involved in that, uh, in that election and campaign, it was really about gathering a large number of, of architects and engineers uh, towards uh, really building a long-term uh, 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 movement uh, from below. And this is how I see uh, the upcoming elections. Um, it's also, I mean, it's also very important to not uh, focus on elections as if they're, they're the only thing happening, and it's not mutually exclusive other than other things. Uh, so, for example, for the Victims Association uh, that uh, Rida knows a lot about and the Residents Association, uh, these are associations that are being formed after the blast. These are uh, about people who have been uh, affected directly in their lives and are now willing to organize, to demand, uh, to build uh, structures, to have a representation, a voice. And that sort of grassroots building uh, is an essential component in complementing electoral work uh, and any work towards elections and the other way around. I see it really as a, uh, uh, as a two-way thing. Thank you, Javier. Um, and perhaps like um, a question to end on uh, from each, uh, like uh, that each speaker could, uh, could address. I think in the audience, like there's an interest in the role of, of Lebanese diaspora. Like what, what can the diaspora do if, if anything? Where do they fit in, in uh, kind of fighting back? And also another question, uh, which is about the role of NGOs. So what would be, where, where do foreign NGOs fit, if anything, are they, you know, helpful or, or not? Um, that would be, if you could um, end on, on addressing um, these points. Um, Brahim, we can start with, with you, if you want. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so it's, it's very good that Abir drew a distinction between elections and at the syndicate level and parliamentary elections, because at the syndicate level, what we're doing is exactly this trying to reorganize society while, on the other hand, it's being dismantled, right, because of the policies that are being enacted at the governmental level. So the syndicate elections and the emergence of organized opposition is one way of reorganizing society in a better way uh, to challenge what's coming next. So that falls into the question of the diaspora. I think 
and me being in the diaspora, I've I've had to had a lot of conversations around what should we do? Should we just send money? Should we wait for the elections? And I think both of these have been tried and tested for those who don't know politics, and they realize that they have very little margin of changing things. The next step really is to concede that we have to politically organize. We have to put time in political organizations that, as I said, would become an alternative way of organizing civil society while civil society as we knew it is being dismantled. So as the middle class and the youth are being kicked out of the country, they have to reorganize in a way, they, in a way that reconnects them with the political landscape at home and allows them to play a part in the way in which the country will emerge after the transitional period. So I'm not inviting you to join my political party, but I invite you to think more politically about the role that diaspora plays beyond just voting at the time of elections. Okay, thank you, Rida. Um, I would add to that, that in addition to the importance of politically organizing and both for the diaspora and for us inside, but also the idea of organizing around uh, labor unions as has been done in the order of, uh, of engineers and uh, next month, uh, November, we'll also have the um, elections in the bar associations, both in Beirut and Tripoli for the first time they're happening at the same time to uh, select a head. Um, but it, let's just keep in mind that these are professional orders that are generally uh, uh, um, include people who are middle class, which so th what what they would give us in terms of uh, representation may not be, uh, we cannot definitely on the parliamentary election. So th there is quite a difference. But organizing around labor unions, I think, and as the victims have been saying and Abir explained, is a priority. Um, specifically because that post-war regime deliberately weakened all forms of organizing, all forms of, 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 of mobilizing around common uh, interests. Um, but our battle now is a battle to, um, to regain the state, is to regain the state institutions. And uh, uh, whether it's in the judiciary or whether it's in the, through uh, unions as well, um, um, all these will come together. Um, uh, to, to the point where we would actually be able to see uh, some kind of change. So for the diaspora itself, this is important, but I do think that they should uh, continue to advocate as they are doing now for their right to vote, regardless um, of our skepticism for the election. Um, there is a risk now that they, their vote might be limited to six um, MPs who are specifically diaspora MPs. This is uh, uh, quite concerning. Uh, diaspora should be voting for the 128 MPs, similarly to everyone. So that's something they should definitely keep on lobbying with. Um, something else with regards specifically to the blast investigation. There are investigations open in some of the uh, other countries such as France um, and Britain and uh, the Netherlands. Um, they can help and there are information that we need from other countries that they are not providing. So the diaspora also can help by, by uh, pushing um, uh, in the countries where they are to, to um, um, collaborate or to support also uh, the, the, the judges who are leading the investigation um, in that sense. Um, with regards to, to NGO, just also um, some final comments. It goes back to what I was saying that we're trying to build a state and we do not want to continue with that Republic of NGOs in which we are living, where most um, NGOs are providing uh, state services. Um, it's very important during the collapse and in the midst of the humanitarian crisis to have that um, NGO support. Uh, but uh, what we need is actually for, for our state to, uh, to provide these services, for our state, as Zabir was explaining as well, to stand with, with the victims of 4 August, with the victims of the collapse. And um, we do not trust this mafia to actually be able to produce any policies that will, will help us all. Uh, but one thing is for sure is that there is some, an understanding that has um, uh, that we have all gained is that we're all victims of one criminal regime. And that's very important in our psyche as Lebanese, because when we came out of the war, we all felt that, felt that we were both victims and perpetrators. This has changed. Currently, we're not fighting each other. We're fighting against uh, one ruling mafia. So I think these, um, um, these are the, the comments that I can make around these questions. Thank you so much, Rida uh, Abir. Uh, I will just add around the point uh, with regards to NGOs because this the 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 
the way the whole recovery process was NGOized, whether by uh, local organizations or international organizations, uh, this has been not only destructive in the sense that it hasn't been able to really uh, provide what we need and, and what's needed, it was never enough and it's not sustainable, but it's also destroyed any possibility at residents organizing. Because when there is not a comprehensive policy for the recovery of the neighborhood, this meant that residents in the same building who were at the beginning uh, willing to speak to each other and find the best uh, solution for them to rebuild their building have now found themselves uh, in tension of maybe fighting with each other because some floors uh, got from this NGO and some floors didn't get from anyone and this created a lot of tension and it even created even more tension between the Syrian and the Lebanese community living in the area and this has really put many obstacles uh, in front of residents uh, or organizing. And also because not only recovery after the blast, but also uh, the whole discussion of how to recover from the economic crisis, having it been linked to international aid. Um, this really took shape, for example, in this 3RF framework that was set up for after the blast, which is a completely uh, internationally led, internationally funded framework that further uh, further marginalizes the state, further marginalizes residents, and it turns the whole reconstruction debate into an international debate around interests uh, related to reconstruction. So I think the, the role of NGOs and international organizations should be really thought about critically because it can definitely bring more harm than, uh, uh, than not. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Javier, for, for this point. Um, we have one last question. If the political financial mafia succeed in, in what you say is their aim of destroying society, how can they themselves continue to thrive? Don't they need a healthy herd to prey on? Are they not themselves threatened by the current existential crisis. So I don't know, Ibrahim, would you would like to briefly just... Uh... Yeah, um, well, if you know how Lebanese society was before the civil war, you know that they are capable of turning economic crises into exactly this, right? Um, destroying the fabric of society pushing the middle class out of the country, destroying the productive capacity of the economy and compromising the judiciary system under the pretense of security and war, and et cetera. And therefore, whatever is left after the war, they can govern it. Um, so that's the first part of the question. So they can thrive even on the, on the ruins of society. This is how actually sectarian leaders do things. The second point, um, I think what, what, what they seem to be willing to do it's, it is an existential crisis for them, right? Because they are used to, it's a clientelist system. They are used to milking the state in order to reproduce loyalties at the community level. So now that the, the cow has died, right? The state have, has been milked to death. Of course, it's an existential crisis because the relationship that they have built with society is a strictly clientelist relationship. They cannot continue the loyalty without giving back benefits. Um, people are, I mean, the people enjoy the lawlessness, sectarian communities enjoy the lawlessness, even if they claim they want a state because lawlessness is actually privilege if you have connections. So in other words, now it is an existential crisis and therefore the way in which they can mitigate the crisis or the, the risk that they are incurring is by reducing the social pressure. And you reduce, reduce the social pressure by kicking the middle class out and pacifying the rest of society by making them more desperate to reach the basic needs and subsidies. And this is a part of the transitional period, right? So you consolidate power, just like they did in the civil war, by pacifying society, pushing the middle class, which usually have the most resources to challenge them, and they are economically autonomous. And what is left of society is manageable. Uh, and they can thrive even on the ruins of society. If anything, this is how they thrive. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Brahim. Um, Rida, Abir, did you want to add anything or is there anything that you felt maybe needs to be um, pointed to if, if we haven't yet talked about it? No? Okay. Maybe I, I just wanted uh, 
and more somebody, someone other than Brahim to conclude so that we, uh, we go back to the theme of fighting back. <laughs> I know with the structural analysis, uh, we're reminded of, of the bleakness of the situation, but I really appreciate- You want uh, some optimism? <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, you want to conclude, Rida? I think, uh, I think, I mean, we've covered a lot of things from different angles, but I do agree they're having a current existential crisis. Uh, and, uh, but um, they're also very strong at um, adapting and at, uh, as Ibrahim was saying, at mitigating all these risks. Um, but for the first time, I think maybe, um, um, it's too much to say first time, but we are seeing a social mobilization that we had not seen before. And really the question is, uh, um, where is all this going to lead in the transformation? Um, one of the criteria would be, is, is the mafia gonna dare to um, uh, um, uh, make their, 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 their senior figures, if you want run again for the elections or not? Are the people gonna accept, for example, the same figures? Or as uh, was said before, they're just gonna bring uh, new figures who follow the same policy, who protect the same interest. Um, but I think people are looking now at those in power. And we've seen it in the last, even the government of Hassan Diab and in the current government. The moment the government was formed, there were all the uh, criticism on the, um, on the private interest of all the ministers. There's a people who is watching those in power now. And I think if we're starting to defend them, to defend ourselves, where this is going to lead us is the question. But we are starting to defend ourselves, which we did not do in, enough in the past. Okay, that's a, a good, good note to, to end on. And thank you for, for your part in, in fighting back. Um, so, and for you know giving us time to um, to speak about uh, what you're doing um, in, in Lebanon. This has really been very um, insightful and, and interesting conversation. Thank you for the Middle East Center for hosting this um, webinar. All right. Um, have a good night, everyone. Thank you, Omar. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for Thank listening. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye.